We want to continue on the discussion we started last week on our Pentecostal beliefs and experience with the Holy Spirit. And uh, prior to that time, we spent uh, numerous weeks talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, now we're moving into the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, it's going to be an interesting few weeks. And I'm excited. I'm nervous. Um, I'm anticipating God to do great things. Last week, we began a series speaking about the normal of the early church. And the early church normal experience was they would get saved, water baptized, and then quite often, within a very short period of time, they were Holy Spirit filled and they ex exercised the gifts of the Spirit. And we see that in all of the scriptures. And one of the reasons why we know that it was going on so much was because it was actually being abused. And that's why Paul wrote such good instruction and correction, actually, in 1 Corinthians. He talked quite a bit about how the gifts of the Spirit are to be used. And, and I think we can infer and imply that the reason that he had to give such effort into this and such detailed instruction was because it was excessively used. Not because it wasn't used, and he was trying to encourage people to use it, but because it was so much the norm that he had to bring some order to it because it was getting disorganized. And we know that the Lord, God, is not a God of confusion, is he? He's a God of order. And so Paul brought quite a good instruction for us on how we should use the gifts. And therefore, his instructions for the early church are for us today, that we are to be instructed on how to use the gifts, not to say they're not for today, not to say that we don't exercise them. No, we do exercise them, but we exercise them in proper order and proper constraint. So it's, a pro it's important that we have a proper understanding of God's word in this area and that we don't miss the mark. I am not trying to teach anything that's not of God and truly of what the, uh, God would have. And I want to encourage the body this morning that we love Jesus. We love Jesus with all of our heart and all of our body and all of our strength and that we spend our time focusing on Christ and then let him then exercise in us. And, and I want to go back and... And, and back it up here with some things. In fact, in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, we are instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first nine verses about how we're to love the Lord. Moses says this in Deuteronomy. He says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in a land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and the commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, basically all the time. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We are to have the word of the Lord in us at all times. We are never commanded, never given the okay to walk out of that passage. Jesus quoted this passage when he was asked by um, people in, in, uh, in the Gospels, what was the most important commandment? 
What was the most important commandment? And this is the way Jesus answered them in Mark chapter 12 and in the other Gospels, but I just chose Mark. Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. Does it sound familiar? What he's doing, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So this morning, again, I come to you this morning as we continue this study that we are impressed here that we are to love the Lord. We are to, seeking, we are to be seeking the giver, not the gifts. And I want to make sure we understand that. We are seeking Jesus. We're seeking God. We're seeking the giver of the gifts more than the gifts. Amen? And as we seek the giver, let him then be responsible to give the gifts. I'm not seeking a particular gift. I'm not seeking a particular manifestation. I'm seeking Jesus Christ, and I want all of God. And I will go to my grave, as long as I can preach the word, I'm going to be encouraging you to seek all you can of God. He has got so much for you. He is so big. He is so awesome. He loves us so much that if we seek him, he'll be faithful to deliver the goods. He'll be faithful to deliver his promises as we seek him. What's interesting, when I read this passage in Mark, is that Jesus added one thing to the list that Moses gave in Deuteronomy, and that is to love the Lord with all your mind, all of our mind, as well as with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Now, it's almost like Jesus was thinking ahead. Can you believe that? <laughs> Would Jesus ever think ahead? It's almost like he was thinking ahead that there might come a time when, when men would place our minds and our thoughts and our education above the love that the Lord has for us. And so what he's doing, he's saying, I want you to love the Lord. I don't want you to love me with all your soul, your strength, and your heart, but I also want to include the mind because there's going to be a battlefield coming sooner or later, and it's probably going to be happening in your mind. So therefore... Let's love the Lord with all of us. Now, could mankind ever think so highly of ourselves that we think we could outthink God? You think that ever could happen? Well, can I just say, look outside. Look at the world around us. What is going on out here? I think we're all seeing the influence of people that are saying that, hey, we're living in the 21st century now. The Bible isn't relevant anymore. The Bible is out of date, and it isn't pertinent. But can I ask the question, what difference does time have in the matter of truth when it comes to morality and spiritual conduct? What difference does it have? If I'm in the year 1, year 10, year 100, or 2015, time does not change the morality of God's Word. Time does not change the truth of God's Word. So. I cannot say that I should be growing up out of the truth of God's word in any way, shape, or form, in any fashion, whether it's same-sex marriage or uh, cohabitation or any other thing or gifts of the Spirit or any other aspect that you would be challenged in. God's word is still true today, just as true as it was then. In fact, I would say that as time goes on, I need more of the Holy Spirit now than ever before. I cannot imagine times any more difficult to live in than we're living in the times right now, especially as we're getting to the end of the age. And we've talked about it numerous times that we are, we are in the fourth quarter. 
And in the fourth, the fourth quarter of the game, the intensity increases. The competition gets stiffer. Our opponent brings more to the table. Our opponent's not going to leave any, he's going to leave it all on the floor. Satan understands, knows the times and the days that we're living in. He understands where we're at in our time. And he is bringing everything he can against you and me and against our children. Do you know that? So if we know that, then let's understand our responsibility is to ramp it up as well. I need to ramp it up. Therefore, I need to, not in my own power, not on my own strength, because I can do nothing against Satan, nothing on my own. It's all through Jesus Christ. It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I am saying is that I need the Holy Spirit now more than ever. And there's nothing that can convince me, and I don't think God's Word says that there's any time where the Holy Spirit isn't needed. He's needed today just like he was needed then. Yes, the early church had a big challenge because they were beginning a whole new thing. But think of the strategies 2,000 years later that the enemies come up with to, to defeat what the early church started. So therefore, there is a lot of mental gyrations going on here. There's a lot of stuff going on here that we need to have. We need to love the Lord with everything, including our mind. And that we cannot allow our logic and our thinking. How did Satan come against Adam and Eve, he came against them in their mind, right? By appealing to their mind, to her rationalization of what God said. He tempted her and said, did God really say? Did God really say that was that bad? Did God really say? Of course that's what he said. And that's the way Satan works today. Satan brings all kinds of rationalization, all kinds of higher learning aspects to say that, no, you got a better way. You don't need to do that old way anymore. You don't need this. You don't need that. I'm just saying this morning that I need to have the Lord in my mind like I need him in my soul. Our mind becomes the battleground. Our mind becomes the battleground. The battleground for what? what is, what's battling in our mind? Well, I believe the battles are numerous, first of all. There are numerous battles, but one that comes to mind in this context is that the battle in our mind is between the necessity for me to understand and comprehend God I must comprehend God. I must understand him before I can truly accept God in faith, believing that his promises are for me as I choose to receive them. There's that battle in a man's mind that says that I need to be in control. I need to have full understanding before I can believe and accept what the scripture says. It's kind of, I, the way I can apply it to my life is like when I'm praying for someone that, as that's sick, for example. First of all, I don't understand why they're sick. They're doing everything right that I can see. I don't understand it. And so I begin the battle in my mind saying, God, I'm praying for this person, and this is how I want you to heal them. This isn't the time frame that I want you to heal them. This is how I want it to happen, God, because I'm praying, I'm praying my desires, and my desires are that you would heal, you would do it this way, and you would do it in this timing, and, you know, who am I to tell God how to do anything other than the fact to say, God, I have a need. I have a need. I have a need of healing. I don't understand it. And if I think that I have to begin to understand how God's going to heal, well, then I'm in a really tough spot because I don't know how God is going to heal people. I don't know how he can reverse that cancer around that is stage four cancer to make where that man is no cancer at all. I don't understand that. But it's faith that's required. What does faith have to say about it? Faith is huge. God tells us that our mind must be renewed 
on a daily basis. Romans chapter 12. We'll get to the faith in a minute. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind. Renewing your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now remember, the devil always deals. I think I can say this safely. The devil always deals in partial truths. How often has he come to you with a full-fledged lie without having some truth in it? No, most of the time he comes with a little bit of a truth and a lot of lie. But the lie may not come to the very end. <laughs> the truth may, peel, may be very good, his partial truths, but if I'm going to operate... If I'm going to operate in the world that defeats Satan and this battleground of my mind, I must be sure that my mind is centered on God's word where I understand the truth, that I can't allow the enemy to come with partial truth and take me off course, that I must have intelligence, I must use my mind, I must train my mind. But at the same time, I must have faith in God's word that, God, I don't understand how you're going to do this, but, you know, your word says your promises are true, and I'm going to believe your word. I'm going to put my mind on the back burner on this one, God. I'm not going to let my mind tell me how you're going to do something. I am going to trust you in the fullness of your word because you said that you have good things in store for those that love you. That's your word. I don't understand it. I don't see it. But faith says, Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about, we do, about what we do not see. If I have to understand it and if I have to grasp it and totally comprehend it, then I don't need faith then I don't need faith. If it's up to me to understand it before I act on it or before I believe on it, then faith is no longer required. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, just five passages down. And without faith, this is, the, this is the faith chapter, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So could that be why some of the things of the Spirit are necessary to be taken in faith? I don't understand the gifts of the Spirit. I don't understand so many things about that. But if I have to believe, if I have to comprehend it and understand it before I believe that God's going to give it, am I limiting God? Am I pleasing God? It says it's impossible to please God without faith. And here are the key words in this passage. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those. Wait. I know that there's abuses in the Spirit. And I know that there have been said that, there, that when you give your mind over to the Spirit, that you are potentially given over to false desires or false teachings or even demonic spirits. But hear me. If God says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, what are those rewards? Do you think truly that if I'm earnestly seeking God that he's going to allow an enemy to come in and fill me with something that's not of him? Truly? If I'm earnestly seeking God? Now, if I'm playing the game, if I'm not earnestly seeking him, well, well, so what? Yes. It may be a very dangerous position. But if I'm earnestly seeking God with all of my, if I'm loving the Lord with all my heart, my strength, my soul, and my mind, if I'm giving him all of me, if I'm totally surrendering, if I'm submitting to him, if I'm living for him, if I'm keeping, if I'm not keeping anything back, 
I don't have this little, little hole in my heart that has got my own little sin here and say, God, you can have all of me but this. No, as soon as I start playing that game, you know what I'm doing? I'm inviting the enemy to come in. I'm giving him a foothold. What's the Bible say about giving the enemy a foothold? Don't do it. Because he's like a camel that gets his head in the tent. I've heard this said before by people. that Once you get your head in the tent, the whole body's going to come in eventually. Well, if I give the devil a foothold in my life in any one area, if I have a little thing in my heart of anything, of, of sexuality, of pride, boy, that's a big one, of pride, gets in my heart at all, well then, yeah, then I'm limiting God because now I'm not truly loving him with everything that I have within me. So as I love him and as I earnestly seek him, I can rest assured that his promises are true and he's going to reward me with good things. Amen. Amen. That gives me so much confidence. That gives me so much peace in the Lord. I don't have to worry about what the Lord's going to do when I open my heart up to him. When I lay before him and just say, Father, I'm all yours. I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm all in. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about that because I know my Father loves me and I know he's going to reward those who earnestly seek him. Wow. That's exactly why we need to have the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. John chapter 16, verse 13 and 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, this is Jesus speaking, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. These are the words that Jesus is speaking to his disciples as he's preparing them for his ascension. He's preparing them for his departation of the world. And he says, the Holy Spirit's coming. And he's going to be the spirit that leads you into all truth. So what I want to speak about this morning are the two extremes, two extremes that are infiltrating the church. Both of them are extreme. And typically when you get into the extreme, there's partial truths. The purpose of this teaching is to bring a proper understanding of what the word says that neither one of these extremes is biblical. These extremes are, please hear my heart, that when I'm saved, one of the extremes is that when I'm saved, I've received all the Holy Spirit there is to receive. That's one extreme. That when I'm saved, I've received all the Holy Spirit there is to receive. The other extreme, which is just as bad, is that unless I'm Spirit-filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues, then I'm not saved. Both of those are extreme, and both of them are on the outside. We want to get in the middle. We want to find the truth of God's word. Kenneth Hagin speaks of these extremes in his book titled The Holy Spirit and His Gifts. This is Kenneth Hagin. There are some extreme teachings in the church today. When I speak of the church, I am not speaking of any particular group or denomination. I am speaking of the church world as a whole. And then he goes on to say, I began my ministry as a denominational preacher, and I know what that particular denomination teaches. And I have been among full gospel people for a great number of years now, and I know what they teach. I have found that we have extreme teaching that is unscriptural in both groups. Again, he goes on to say, The denominational church that I belong to taught me if you are born again, then you have the Holy Ghost, and you have all the Holy Ghost there is to have. They are partly right, 
but mostly wrong in that assertion. Can I insert here again, what does the devil work in? The devil works in partial truths. He gives us just enough to say, yep, that's good. That's good. But what's the end? What's the end result? What's the whole story? They are right, Kenneth Hagin says, they are right in that if you are born again, you do have the Holy Ghost because there is a work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. John chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. He's talking to Nicodemus, and this is where he says, You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, Well, how can I be born again? How can I enter the, my mother's womb? I can't do that. And then Jesus says, No, Nicodemus, the flesh is flesh, and the spirit is spirit. When you're born again, you're born of the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit coming into the unrighteous man. Kenneth Hagin says, It is the Holy Spirit who imparts eternal life to the ungenerated spirit of the sinner. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. There's that renewal, renewal of the mind, renewal, renewal of the spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That is salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that who who, re, who recreates the sinner's spirit and makes him a new creature in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit must enter the man and recreate the heart. Remember, the heart is, uh, is sinful beyond sin. The heart is con constantly sinful. And it's the Holy Spirit that recreates the heart of a sinful man that is now making, taking him from an enemy of God into a child of God. The Holy Spirit must do that. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled him, us to himself, to Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That is the message of salvation, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It is the Holy Spirit who's, who bears witness with the spirit of the born-again one that he is a child of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Huh. We could talk about that for a long time. We could talk about that, how God has adopted us and we are sonship, or we are in, we are in, we are in the family of God. But none of this is the same as the infilling of the Holy Spirit. None of this is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is all talking about salvation. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even though the Holy Spirit is already in you at salvation and is present in the believer, this baptism in the Holy Spirit is an endowment or a release of power from on high as a gift, as a gift to every believer. 
It is a gift to every believer. So the one extreme then is that once a person is saved, they have all the Holy Spirit is to receive. So that's one extreme. The second extreme is to be, to be avoided is the teaching that unless a person is filled with the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues, they aren't saved. That's not anywhere in Scripture. This couldn't be further from the truth. You're saved when you accept Jesus Christ in your life. Speaking in tongues is not evidence of salvation or the new birth. It is evidence of the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A person that accepts Jesus Christ as a Savior through the prompting and the calling of the Holy Spirit is 100% totally saved in their belief and acceptance of Jesus Christ. No more is needed. Nothing else is needed from that. You are totally saved. You're going to heaven. The outward appearance of their salvation is the fruit of their life thereafter that would show the world that they are obeying Christ as they would live their life for Christ. That's why we spoke six or seven weeks on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's why we spent so much time talking about the fruit of the Spirit in our salvation that we would live truly um, godly lives through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit before we ever started with the manifestation of the gifts because we know how those can be abused. Therefore, we need to understand the fruit of the Spirit and what that is including and, what, and how that is impacting the um, saved person. We have scriptures that would tell us that we are to live before the Lord and show people our spiritual fruit to show them that we're Christians. The, I mean, I think the one that we could go to right away, John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how people know we're Christians, because we love people, because the fruit of the Spirit is in us, not because you speak in tongues. That's not a proof of your salvation. All right. So if, if, if we're to do everything we can to avoid each extreme, where should we be landing then in the proper function and role of the Holy Spirit in us? Scripture clearly says that the Father, through the Holy Spirit, must actively draw or call one unto salvation. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up that last day. So if God, through the Holy Spirit, doesn't call a man, there's nothing that man can do to get saved. It is the power of the Holy Spirit drawing that man unto him, convicting of sin, and bringing them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the convicting agent on earth to draw men to Jesus. So with that said, what's the relationship of the Holy Spirit that, brung, that brings one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the one and the, and the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize us with? What's the relationship between the saving Holy Spirit and the baptizing Holy Spirit? Well, can I tell you, can I tell you they're the same? It's the same Spirit. The same Spirit that saved me is the same Spirit that baptizes me, that I'm baptized into. Jesus baptizes me with the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit. It's not another Spirit. It's the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes a sinner into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hear this. The Holy Spirit baptizes a sinner into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then subsequent, subsequent to that, Jesus Christ baptizes the believer with the power of the Holy Spirit unto a power to overcome the enemy and to be a witness in the world we live in. 
Holy Spirit baptizes this person to Jesus to be saved. And then Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit into service, into works for the kingdom, into being witnesses into the world, to be in service to the, to the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit power is for service. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that brings us to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's the same spirit that Jesus baptizes us with at a, at a greater measure. Same spirit, greater measure. And the only reason I'm going through this is to prove to us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that already resides in the life of the believer. In fact, a person can't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless they're already saved. A person cannot receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless they're saved. Luke chapter 11, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew Henry says this in his commentary about that passage. Matthew Henry says, The direction he gives us is what to pray for. We must ask the Holy Spirit not only in necessary in order to our praying well, but as inclusive of all the good things we are to pray for, we need no more to make us happy. For the Spirit is the worker of spiritual life. So I'm saved. I have joy in my spiritual life because I'm saved. And then he says, and the earnest of, of, of eternal life, note he says, the gift of the Holy Ghost is a gift every one of us are to earnestly and constantly pray for. So there's that more. There's that more, not different, more of the same Spirit. Holy Spirit, Jesus, baptize me with more of what I already have. Let me give you an example, and I hope this might help. If, I'm, if I have two people here, and if I give both of them $1,000, I'm giving them both money in the form of U.S. currency. They both have $1,000. If one person receives a gift of an additional $10,000, they still only have U.S. currency. It's the same currency, it's just that one person has, has been gifted with more of the same currency. Right? Now, just because they have the same currency doesn't mean that they, have the bo they both have the same level of stewardship. The man with $1,000 may be a great steward of the $1,000. And the man with $10,000 may be a poor steward of it. And the one with $10,000 may abuse it and may lose it and may, at the end of the day, be with nothing. Whereas the man with $1,000 may be a good steward of it and invest it wisely and end up with a lot more than a man with $10,000. Amen? Have you seen that? Have we seen that in life examples with lottery winners? Okay? All right. So we, see that, we, we can see that analogy, right? Now let's look at what the Holy Spirit is. Let's look at the same analogy. Two people are saved. Two people have the Holy Spirit in their life. They're indwelling with the Holy Spirit. Both of them are saved. Same currency, Holy Spirit currency. Now, one receives a gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the gifts that come along with that. Now, that person that has the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
doesn't instantly sanctify him, and it doesn't remove him from being able to sin. We see, and if you go back in the book of Corinthians, the correction that was given in Corinthians was not just about the abuse of the Holy Spirit, but there was a lot of immorality. There was a lot of bad stuff going on in the early church. Even though they were saved, baptized in water, and baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were still not living their lives correctly. But yet, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. How many people have you seen baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues on Sunday morning, and live for the, and live for the devil on Saturday night? I've seen them. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I don't want that gift because somebody's abused it? That's like saying, I don't want any money because that lottery winner lost it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a deal. If you don't want the money, give it to me because I'll take it. I don't have any problem with that money. I don't have any problem with the fact that somebody abused it and lost it. I don't have any problem with the fact I feel bad for the person, but it doesn't shake my belief that the gifts are in addition to my salvation. It doesn't change it because somebody has abused it and I've seen it happen. And maybe there's been times where I've even done it myself because I'm no perfect man. I speak in tongues a lot. I love what Paul says. I speak in tongues more than all of you. And I'm not saying I do that. But I speak in tongues, but that doesn't say that I can't sin. That doesn't mean that I can't abuse the gift that God has given me. My fear is that I ask the Lord to teach me how to use the gift. Amen? That I don't be part of the abusing. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. And my part of the solution is to encourage all of us to receive all that God has for you and then say, use it wisely. Use it wisely. Unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion you don't think the devil loves confusion? You don't think that's maybe why the devil has brought this battle to the mind? That this whole confusion of Holy Spirit-filled power? Think about it. Think about the man that had $1,000 and was a good steward of it and managed it well and ended up with more. How much do you think he would have had if he would have been given $10,000? How much do you think, spirit-filled believer, how much more you can be more active in the kingdom, more empowered to do exactly what you're doing right now, the same things but with the power of the Holy Spirit that he's gifting us with. And so I will go to my heavenly reward constantly asking you, pleading with you, encouraging you to say, God, I am seeking the giver and I want everything you have for me. I don't understand it. I don't always, I can't comprehend it, but God, that's proving to you that I know that you are greater than I am. That's the kind of God I want to serve. I want to, I want to serve a God that I can't really comprehend because if I could comprehend him, then he's not much bigger than I am. So therefore, I operate, I live in faith. Let me conclude this morning by saying the next couple statements that I believe in my heart, that God would have every believer receive the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in their life as Jesus promised them. We're going to talk later about the different gifts. We're going to talk about the gifts of tongues and interpretations. We're going to talk about a private prayer language that I believe the Holy Spirit talks about. And we're going to talk about that later. But I believe that God has a gift 
for all of us today. First of all, he would have no man perish. He would have all people come to Jesus, right? And let me just encourage you today that if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, but if you have Jesus in your heart, you're going to heaven. All right? I don't want anybody to walk out of here confused or feeling condemned. You're going to heaven because you love Jesus, and that's all that matters. And you can go through your whole life that way, and you're my brother, and you're my sister, and I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. But at the same time, if you want more, go for more. God's got more for you. He always will have more for you. How in the world can we ever think that we could contain this mighty God? If God really put his finger on me, I would blow up. I would blow up. I could never contain all of God in me. He would just blow me up. So let me ask you then, if a person that is baptized in the Holy Spirit, does that make them more saved? No. Does it mean that God loves them more? No. Does it mean that they're better in any way or shape or form? No. Does it make them more spiritual? Does it make them a better steward? Does it make them anything? Does it make them sinless? No, absolutely not. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is Peter preaching after he'd received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. First thing he said, Repent and be baptized. Repent. Peter's direction to them was not get filled with the Holy Spirit, was repent, get saved. That was his direction. And then verse 39, or finishing verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the norm of the Bible. That's the norm of the New Testament of that age. The promise, verse 39, the, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, that's me and that's you. We are, we are far off from the early church. For all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise of what? The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all people. Not just them, all people. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift from God for every born-again believer and all the benefits of the power that it does provides for our purpose and for our fulfillment and for our service unto others. Amen? I think we can all appreciate the fact that we can never appreciate or experience all there is of God. We're going to have all eternity to experience God, and we'll never really understand him. That's how big he is. That's how big he is. And if we get impatient, and if we start thinking that we're going to understand this God, well, now you're taking yourself out of the area of faith. And now you're taking you out of the ability of pleasing God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So this morning, my invitation to you is receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in its completeness and its fullness. Would you close your eyes and pray with me? Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you. Lord, the whole theme of this service today has been about love. The whole theme of this is, oh, how you love us. Oh, how you love me. I am so thankful for that. And Lord, I know that for those that you love, you cherish. And your word says that for those that earnestly seek you, that you will reward. 
because of your love. And so, Father, we earnestly seek you. And we are just asking you to fill us with all that you have for us. All that you have. Now, Father, I pray as we go through our homes today that you will allow the thoughts, that you will allow our minds to be renewed by the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that we will seek you in all truth and all your word. And I pray you'd protect us. Protect that. Help us not to be deceived. Help us not to walk down a path of our minds being partially true, partially false. Help us to seek full truth. Help us to love each other. By our love, they will know us. Help us to love people. Yes, we may disagree on some things, but we can love each other because that's the major. And we love you in Jesus' name.